but they only give you one piece of the equation, not the whole decision around whether or not I should invest in the oil well. Should I invest in another well? Should I do a parent child? How do I work over a well? What's the capital efficiency model? Essentially, DataGration's platform allows you to take all these disparate sources of data and run a script on top of it that gives outputs around whether I should work over the well, whether I should drill another well, whether I should complete the well, whether I should abandon the well, whatever I should do with it. And it's all done automatically and it's all displayed in any open API. So whether it's Spotfire or Power BI or Tableau, you're able to, you're able to display it, work up in there and then import it back to the platform again. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It is more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360 degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a firsthand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit SimmonsPSC.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit Lockton.com for more information. Tomahawk Safety, a leading manufacturer of safety gloves ergonomically designed for superior fit, offering best-in-class protection and helping you combat the industry's toughest jobs. Tomahawk is also supporting our frontline healthcare workers by offering isolation gowns, gloves, masks, and other critical medical PPE. For more information, please visit TomahawkSafety.com. Range Valuation Services. Range is the only oil and gas focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property, and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit rangevaluationservices.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. I am your host for today's show. I am joined, as usual, by the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. David DeRode. Good afternoon. How, How are, you? are you doing? I'm good, sir. We are in the Fletcher Azul Tequila Podcast Studio in Houston, Texas, on a fine Friday afternoon. It is a fine Friday afternoon, and I, I can't believe we talked ourselves into doing this, but we've just had a phenomenal day of, of uh, conversations and guests. You had to, you had to do it. You know, the, the way that this works is we will do a show and then we'll obviously release one every week. It's, it's typically, that's, that's about how they do this. So what's 
what stinks for the audience is they won't really get the flow of how many we've done today. This is our second one, but the the energy inside the studio is just it's electric today. Everybody awesome. kind of fills the room afterwards. Everybody's shaking hands, and it's just it's such a great place to be today. Well, we've had we all as usual we have we have kind of a uh, revolving door of of uh, energy friends and executives and uh, Craig Andrews in here earlier, and uh, I'm surprised we haven't seen Scott Miller in yet. We've uh, got a special guest we'll talk about here in a second. Yeah. But uh, anyways, you know, you're surprisingly looking good. You were talking about before we started this, you're, you're you know, going to have a tough time. But uh, I'm a gamer, David. I'm a gamer. I, I am. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm playing injured today. But yeah. again, I'm, I'm going to play through it. You mentioned the special guest. Yes. And it, when she came in today, I thought this is a this is when you're injured. What do you do? You, you bring in a special guest that way. It's not as obvious how injured you are. And Laura Schilling, who has been a guest and also a co-host, she's in and, we're, and all of a sudden she's here. She's Aww. like, well, hey, she's friends with our guest who we're going to introduce here in a second. We're like, would you like to co-host? She's like, well, no. I'm like, sit down. We, we lock her in. Jonathan puts a mic in her face. We got a co-host today. She's Aww. like a trained professional. And, you know, and, and uh, normally, unlike the two of us who yes. are just complete dumpster fires, she normally likes to have herself very well prepared and yes. collected, but and and normally that would be the case. But in this particular case, our special guest today, Peter Bernard, who's one of my very good friends, and I could tell you all the things that he's the chairman of or board member of or investor, and we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But it would take me five minutes to do that, so we'll spread that out. But the other just, um, I mean, Laura Schilling knows him. Yes. Yeah. So no, today, listen, thanks for having me and today, back again. And today is all about friends. We're all friends in this room today. And we've had actually a lot of all of us have had our oil field careers around each other. So today, today is just a fireside chat, right? Well, so Peter mentioned that he's known you obviously longer than he's known us. So how long have you guys known each other? So I met Peter when I was 25 years old. And uh, I am forever grateful to Peter Bernard because he hired me into my first oil field dream job. And I was a wide-eyed, freshly minted MBA student out of Rice University. And my dream was to go be in oil field services. And I was unique. I wasn't an engineer. So at that time, a lot of the jobs went to the engineers. But uh, he brought me in and uh, mentored me and has coached me over the years and been a great friend. and. Um, it's been fantastic, fantastic to have us all here today. So how long ago was that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a long time ago. Because, <laughs> I mean, when you think about that time, I, that's how, with all due respect to, to you, your husband, that's 2000s. how old I think you are right now. She's still a pup. She's yeah. still very young. Yes, I'll, I'll say that. I look, it was all my pleasure to get the opportunity to hire her. We were lucky. We were very fortunate to be able to hire and find someone like Laura and then have her stay with a great career with Halliburton and really deliver a lot of great things for us. Oh, so I'll, I'll open by saying that very, very sincerely. And we've kept in touch. Yep. And uh, when she has things to talk about or I do, I'd reach out to her. So it's great. So so one of the topics that we've discussed before on this podcast with Laura and, and Leslie and others is the whole conversation of diversity and inclusion. It's 25 years ago. You're at Halliburton. To, to your point, you weren't an engineer. Why why'd you, why'd you hire... Uh, Laura? Well, it, 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 it's a great question. Believe it or not, we started talking about diversity and we started looking at uniqueness, creation of people that could bring a different perspective, uh, a different belief system, 
uh, a different background. Let's face it. We didn't have a lot of high-powered MBAs that were right out of school that we were given. And we, we all, all of us, a lot of the senior guys at Halliburton recognized we had to get more diversity in thought, in action. And you didn't have to be a hard-knocking engineer to be successful. And so we started that way back when. Laura was one of the first ones we brought in uh, with, with a, a core group of people. And uh, they're still doing it, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it was a very successful program. And it, it produced great talent like Laura. So, I agree with that. And, I, and that question, Laura gave me this look like, why wouldn't he hire me? And I, and I, and I have the same, I have the same. That look. was not what that look was. <laughs> well, so before we get into, we do a little pre-show warm up on all these. And every one of our guests, we always ask you, have you ever done one of these podcasts before? Sometimes people have, sometimes they haven't. And as we were doing some pre-show prep with you, uh, you, you start talking. I've never met you before. Obviously, these two guys know you. And I immediately picked up your Cajun accent from Lafayette, Louisiana. And then you go through your extensive history resume, and you're, you were one of the main global uh, reps for Halliburton. So you're a Cajun who worked at the highest levels of Halliburton. I heard those two cents. I'm like, we, we don't need any show prep. This guy is going to kill it. Like, you, There's nothing we're going to throw at you in the next hour that you're not going to be prepared for. So Thank you. I, I do believe I, I am the highest Cajun executive at Halliburton, but believe it or not, at one time, there was four ULL or USL graduates, mm -hmm. Raging Cajuns, who were VPs or above at Halliburton at the same time. Yes, I was fortunate to be the most senior one, but there was three others while I was there all at the same time. Any, so anybody's I, done. I, I affectionately like to refer to ULL as ooh la la. Ooh la. Well, listen, anybody who's done business over there, know that the work ethic of the, the Lafayette workforce is just top notch. I mean, they do. They work very hard over there. They like to work hard and they like to play hard. Yes. Hunt, uh, is does hunt hard? Is that what we're talking about? Hunting and well, uh, well, fishing. hunting, partying, enjoying life, uh, cookouts. It's the whole joie de vie, joie de vie that comes from being a Cajun and never having a, a person you don't like mm -hmm. as long until they treat you wrongly and then they hate you. That is I, that is the I cannot believe you brought that up. I, I have to hijack this whole interview for this one point. Sure. I, I went over. I told you I went over there in two thousand one. And a friend of mine, Hector Villarreal, and I, he's, he has uh, olive skin. I never really put together Villarreal as being Hispanic. I just looked at the olive skin and assumed he was the Cajun olive skin because there's a lot that the skin color over there. And, I, and we went over there. He knew everybody. And I said, Hector, how are you? Uh, how long did you live in Lafayette? He's like, I've never lived here. And I said, well, how do you know everybody? And he said, well, that's how they treat you, that you are their friend until they, you have a reason to, for them not to be your friend. And then you're out forever. And that was the, I learned that at 23 years old. And I've, I took that throughout my entire career of being, that's how you treat people. And I can't believe you've, I haven't heard anybody say that in 20 years, but yes, that it, is the it, Cajun way of business. It's a fact. I've, I've had people tell me, I've been to Lafayette and they were really mean to me. They were, they were horrible. Uh, I didn't get along with them. I hated it very rarely. And the first thing I told them is that you must've been an asshole mm -hmm. <laughs> and they saw it and they, cause they, they sense it right away. I said, because I've had at least 90% of the people tell me how much they love it. The people, they treated them. I said, because you were nice to them, you're respectful to them, then you'll be their best friend for life. And you can always go back and they'll adopt you again. So you're, you're correct. That's just the way it is. That's, well, just, that's just the culture. I'm incredibly likable. So this makes perfect sense. That probably helped. Yes. But I haven't heard that it was bad, Josh. No one's called me to ask me. So, so obviously you're okay. Yes. I'm, I'm officially allowed to approve people or not. Oh, well, I got, I got 50 minutes to, to lock this down then. So this yes. is great. Well, listen, we, we, I, I do appreciate you coming on the show. And David's, this was, uh, to get to get you in today is a big deal. David's very excited about it. I'm very excited about this. So 
let's just jump right into this. I mean, David, I, I want to give this, turn this over to you and well, I think you go. like usual, we always like to kind of give everybody a sense of who our guest is. And while there are a lot of people that know who you are and what you've done, there are a lot of people that don't and right. are very interested. And so I think it would be helpful for you to kind of give us a, a background. How'd you get to Halliburton and then how, how you moved on from there? Sure. Uh, so as we've talked about already from Louisiana, Lafayette, graduated from Ulala at the time, USL. It's actually an interesting story. I actually got two degrees. Uh, I got a USL degree diploma, and then I've got one University of Louisiana at Lafayette, uh, which was a unique one that they had made because they were trying to get out of calling it a regional USL. But there was a fight, and you couldn't call it University of Louisiana because LSU was unhappy because they were the Louisiana University. You know, they they were it. Louisiana, and so it caused problems. So I have two diplomas. So and I do you got two degrees? Or two you got two degrees, but the same degree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in petroleum engineering, uh, went to work locally as a reservoir engineer uh, for a local consulting firm. So I did everything, uh, geology, ge you know, and, and anything you needed to get done, I had to do as a, a person out of school. All the really intelligent stuff, by the way. Don't let the accent or the humor fool you. Yes. From there, I went to work for a company called Geovan, which is a tubing conveyed perforating company. And about nine months later, Halliburton bought them. So I quickly became a Halliburton employee. I was a Geovan employee for a short period of time. And I was very fortunate with a petroleum engineering degree and a reservoir engineering background. Halliburton chose to move me through all of their divisions pretty frequently. So I started off in the completion division, where we did all the gravel packing design, all the offshore Gulf of Mexico. And then quickly, I moved into the wireline and the logging division where I was doing log interpretation uh, design for, for large-scale logging operations. And then that morphed into a drill stem testing operations where I did all the DSTs. For every DST that was done in the Gulf of Mexico, I had the opportunity to design it and to do the engineering work. I have the dubious distinction that I designed a blowout for ARCO when they did the subsalt design. You probably saw it on TV. I was actually fishing offshore when that occurred right out of Fushaw. And the blowout occurred because it was a subsalt. They, they, they estimated to have a huge volume of salt, uh, oil above the salt plate, and they wanted to drill in it, but it was so low pressure, you'd have a chance for it to over-displace. Anyway, they had a blowout. It wasn't, it wasn't severe. No one died, but it took a while to kill the well. So from there, I worked my way up through my career in engineering, engineering design, and then got moved into sales, sales, sales operations work. Uh, and had the opportunity to move seven times in nine years. So I worked myself up to the different ranks of uh, global sales representatives, head of sales for the company. One of the unique opportunities is during part of my moves in my career, I was offered to go to Landmark Graphics. Halliburton had just bought Landmark uh, probably three, four months earlier. And they were looking for a, I'll say, guinea pig. Uh, to go over to Landmark. They spent a lot of money on Landmark. They didn't know anything about software, software technology. And because I had a little bit of background in it, a lot of, not a lot, I was asked to go over there as the head of their drilling technology group. Didn't know a lot about it. So I went over to Landmark and over the course of seven years, worked my way up from the head of the drilling group to president and CEO of Landmark Graphics Corporation. Uh, at the time we had grown, when I went over, we were about 450 people. By the time I went back to Halliburton proper, we were 3,300 uh, worldwide. We were three-quarter of a billion-dollar revenue profit line business. We were 253 million profit. So it was a very profitable product line. We also did all the project management. So if you think about all the projects globally that get done, where we ran the rigs for the company, 
that was part of our group as well. They had merged it over when we were having difficulty making profit from it. So I was allowed to bring the group in over at Landmark and have it as a part of my team. So we called it the Digital Consulting Solutions Group and Project Management. They quickly took the different product line groups and merged them together and formed uh, two larger divisions. Then I was asked to move in and take uh, the role of Senior VP of Business Development, Contracts, and Marketing for the whole corporation. So I did that for a couple of years. Grew the, we grew the company up to $22 million revenue company. I was on the executive committee of the company, so I was one of eight people working for Dave Lazar, reporting to the board, who ran the company on a global basis. So it was a very exciting career. I enjoyed it. Uh, that was the seventh move I'd had in nine years. And Josh and I talked about this early. I, I was brought into the room and asked to move for the eighth time uh, to another location. And by this time, I was the ripe age of 47 years old and recognized there was life potential out of Halliburton. I had a 25-year career with the company. Loved it. Loved every minute of it. It's been fantastic. But saw other opportunities to go out and to see what else was out there in the world. So uh, retired from Halliburton, sat out for a little while. And then got lots of phone calls, lots of inbounds of people wanting me to, to come in. And, but I didn't want to go back to the tradition, traditional world of oilfield services. So I was contacted by Kinda Capital, which was uh, managing the Shell Technology Venture Capital Portfolio, the $2 billion portfolio of 26 different companies at the time. I was asked by Eric Volabrek, who I knew at Halliburton through relationships there, who was the, the lead director for Kinda Capital to be chairman of two of their companies. Uh, one was called Tendeca, the UK-based completion company. The other one was called Zytex, which was a ESP-related uh, new technology wave company, and then sit on four of their boards as an advisor. So I did that for six years. We ended up selling Zytex very successfully, uh, pre-commercial to Slumberjay. Uh, and then Tendeca, unfortunately, we came down to the finish line, and then 2014-15 hit, and we were unsuccessful in, in selling it, they actually still have that portfolio. While I was at with Kinda Capital, Warburg Pincus contacted me as we began to unwind some of the portfolio. And I was down to one company actually sitting on the board. And Warburg wanted to go into the all field services sector of the business. They had tried about 15 years prior to that from 14. And on one opportunity, they weren't successful. They wanted to go back into the all field services investing group. And I would be the first senior advisor that they would want to bring in to look at how they made those investments. And I met with the whole Warburg group. They grilled me. I, I flew up to New York multiple times, many, many, many interviews. And finally, they made me an offer. Uh, they actually tried me for six months. So they did a try before you buy, which was a lot of fun. I got to look at a lot of deal flow uh, and then joined the company. Uh, and uh, during the course of the six-year career I had with them, I'm still in the senior advisor, but we'll talk about where they are. We, we acquired 11 different companies. The 11 companies we acquired were merged into three different companies. One of the companies is called Rubicon Allfield International, uh, which people know in the industry today. Uh, we had seven different companies we rolled up. The other one was Conquest Completion Services, uh, which was a roll-up of two companies. And then RSAG, RS Energy Group out of Canada, which is a software group, uh, was a roll-up of two, RSAG and Navport. So I sat on the – sorry. No, I was just going to say, you recently exited, helped uh, exit uh, RSAG. Yeah, so RSEG's a very interesting story uh, and unique in uh, how Warburg, Warburg went about looking at the company. So imagine you have a bunch of really smart people that sell financial, financial data for oil and gas companies, reservoir engineering and financial analysts. There was 42 people in Canada. 
I was asked by Warburg to go up and meet with them in late 2015. And uh, they're a reservoir group, so pretty much fit in my wheelhouse. And Warburg's thesis was, well, if we could codify, if we could take their smarts and turn it into software in a unique niche that would bridge the gap that a lot of the others, Drilling Info, IHS, WoodMac, were not delivering specifically, it'd be great. So when I first met with the Calgary guys, uh, their largest deal they had ever done was around $200,000, give or take. And after the third meeting, a fourth meeting, I stood up in front of them. I said, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a platform. It's going to be a unique software platform we're going to design from scratch, which I love to do. Uh, because trying to take old technology and modernize it is really difficult. Mm. Starting from scratch is the best way to go. And I said, by the time we finish our first products, you're going to walk into a customer's office and tell them they got to pay you a million to $2 million a year for the product. They laughed me out of the room. They thought that was the funniest thing. They said, no way, Peter. We, 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 we can never get a million dollars. We, we never even dreamed of making 500000 a year. How could we do a million? Their first big deal was a $10.8 million three-year deal. Real big deal. Their, their first first deal was a $4.5 million three-year deal for a well-known company here in town. And then it just propelled from there. They sold the company. It was a $100 million revenue company. When we started, we were 25. So let me ask you, though, where does, where does that vision come from that you go into a company doing $200,000 deals to you're going to do million-dollar deals going forward? You have to understand what the customers were needing, okay? You have to understand that if you only ask for $200, you are only going to get $200. You have to go in. And, and what was even more unique about the RSEG group, they would not let you keep the software. They would only show you a demo but they would never leave the demo with you. You had to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars just for them to leave a demo for you and to guarantee you were going to buy the software. And if you didn't, you had to turn the demo off and give it all back to them. So it was a whole different, and that's the whole model we put together, which nobody's ever done before. I mean, I, I, I was even uh, apprehensive in some ways when we thought about doing that model, but we said we, what we were offering was so unique and that it, it, it enabled the, the companies to be so much more successful so quickly. And I imagine if you call the companies today, they would tell you. What they brought was not just data. It was the way you used the data. It was how you displayed the data. Well, look, they went to gaming. They did GPUs. We didn't do CPU. So most companies could only render about 500,000 wells at a time before their machines would crash because you're using CPU, 64 bits. We actually went straight to GPUs. We used a company called Kinetica out of Toronto that the whole gaming industry, high, high data transmission, and so we could render 6 million wells faster than our competitors could do 500,000 wells. And today, that's what they're doing. They're rendering over 6 million wells in seconds. So we knew when we did that, people would pay for it, and it was worth every amount we were asking them to pay for. I mean, that, that kind of experience, though, that you're talking about, what, so what year are we talking about when that? That was 20? 20... We, we closed the deal December 23rd, 2015. And then we kicked off the company and the introduction and us working with them beginning of 2016. Okay. And so this is 2020. So they, they was really just starting. So we really didn't hire all the people and get everything started for about four or five months. And that's why I say it was three and a half years because we, we were still just selling the traditional revenue stream we had, which was financial analytics to the Wall Street. And what was the appetite for the digital services in 2015, for instance, versus by the end of your 20? It was, it was a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So Woodmac, IHS, Drilling Info, it globally was a multi-data, the global data industry, I'll, I'll call it that, and the, the information industry and how you took information about wells and uh, both international and domestically. Yeah, it's, it's multi-billion. You know, it's interesting, listen to all this, and we had Patty Milcher on earlier, 
and we were we were laughing about her comments when she was working part time, which was forty to fifty hours a week when she was with LE, hmm. and and listening to you talk, and you're talking about all the stuff that you were doing. I saw you doing all this stuff, but in addition to that, you're advising several other companies. You're on the board of US Silica. You're doing all this other stuff, and and I think, you know, what's I, I'd like our audience to understand and appreciate is people that are successful work their butts off and they don't know, they don't know stop and they don't know turn off. And uh, anyways, I just wanted to add that in there because I, I it, think it's very important. Yeah, it's absolutely. And that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out, you know, and again, I mean this with the utmost respect. It's you're, you're playing in a digital world that you seem to have a very good grasp on the vision of what's next. And you're not 26 years old. You know, and there's you're not in this uber millennial mindset. So how do you that's why I was wondering, how do you get and keep that vision for so long? So when I was asked to join Landmark and to take over running the company, I went through a whole different realm of thinking of things differently because there's traditional oil field services mm -hmm. and then there's technical people. You can imagine at Landmark, oh, I was surrounded by brilliant people and I love to absorb other people's things, other people's technology, other people's brilliance. Uh, I like to say I like to learn what people do really, really well and be able to emulate it and continue carrying it on. And I like to try to forget about what people don't do well. And so I thrive on technology. So I'm, I'm a technical person at heart, but I'm also a salesperson and business person uh, driven. Mm -hmm. And so I love to combine those things. I will study things, technology to the deepest, richest, I'll understand it down to the bit and bite, but then I want to know how to translate it to commercial aspects. That's what I like about it. That's what I love doing. I love surrounding. That's my passion is learning technology, people, working with people, sitting on boards, being engaged. It drives me. And and I'm always learning things. I'm I'm a sponge uh, is the way I like to describe it. I, I'll absorb anything I can get from anybody uh, that, that I believe is valuable. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Sure. I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah, you're not, you're I, I throw out the fodder. Them. Sure. I, I keep in all, all the good things. And I, I adapt. And so I, I love doing it. Yeah, I'm 59 years old. I don't mind saying my age. Uh, and I'm still reading and learning every day I get up in the morning. First thing I do is I fire up the computer very early in the morning and I read all the latest technology news from Journal Protect Technology to World Oil, any any publications I can get my hands on. That's the first thing I do every day, seven days a week. Yeah. Unless so, I'm hunting or fishing with David. <laughs> which is good living, by the way. I don't yes. mean, this is going to sound like a very leading softball question. I don't mean it to be, but I just feel like it's it's important. Do you do you surround yourself? And this kind of goes back to the Laura Schilling question. You know, it, it's I'm sure it was obvious that a, a young Laura was going to be something special at 25 years old. Did did you identify like, is there a youthful aspect? You're like, I need to be around young, fresh ideas to help me keep my mindset fresh, young, thought provoking. It's not an age thing, Josh. No, I, I have to tell you, I there was several people. One of the guys at at uh, RS Energy's name was Jim Jarrell. Jim was only two or three years younger than I am, but he he had vision and direction around the reservoir engineering, what they did, what they didn't do. So it, the, the younger people think about things differently. In some ways, not as good as some of the older people who have the uh, the history of what worked and didn't work and whatever. So there's a balance. So mm -hmm. it's not just age, although there's some really smart people. One of the people uh, that sit on our new company, Datagration, which I guess we'll get a chance to talk about, He's in his 40s. He's brilliant. He was at iOffice 
Uh, his name is Kenton Gray. He's, his chief te- he's our chief technology officer, and he, I'm learning stuff from him every day. And he'll tell you I'm always picking his brain about some of the new things that he's done. And then he, then he forgets I remember everything he says. Yeah. That's the other thing I'm really fortunate about. If I want to remember it, I'll remember it. Uh, it, it's my memory is a very good thing and it's, it's what served me very, very well. If I don't want to remember, I don't, but if I do remember it, I'll never forget it. And so that definitely helps. Well, now that I think the audience has a good understanding of the background that Peter has, and it's a unique career to have reviewed so many startup companies, so many companies who have succeeded companies that have failed. I think the audience would be, would love to know from your perspective, when you walk in and you're that fresh set of eyes either in the Kenda world or Warburg, where you are today, you know, when you look at these startup companies or these ventures, what are some of the mistakes that, that you see that have maybe limited their growth? Because you definitely come in, you, you get the vision, you get it very quickly, and you spur phenomenal growth. So what, what is it that keeps some of these companies from being able to do that themselves um, that are on that startup journey? What are some of the mistakes that you've seen that you think people could benefit from understanding more about? It's a great question. Uh, before I answer the question, I'll, I'll say that I've been fortunate to look at several hundred different companies uh, between Warburg and Kinda Capital and, and how they've run. And at Halliburton, I, at Landmark, we, we acquired 32 different companies while, through my tenure. So I, I've had the opportunity, fortunate and unfortunate, to look at and acquire a lot of companies. And for me, uh, a lot of it has to do with the people, Laura. Uh, you understand whether the people have drive or not, have commercial acumen, have the ability to take it to the next level. Because there's different levels of companies, both from a startup company who have a great idea, but they couldn't commercialize it if their name was commercialized, unfortunately. And I see that a lot. And so you have to determine whether you're going to bank a person who really can't commercial, but they're really, really smart. So then you step back and say, well, how about if I bring a really smart commercial person to walk with, work with a really technical person and to combine those things? And so that's how I approach looking at any different company. It's the personalities. It's the smarts within the company. And then it's the product and the product's market application. So is it going to fit? Is it timely? And look, I don't know all about it, but if I don't, I'll either ask other people or I'll do the research on it myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm going to make the decision myself. And, and one of the u- unique things about with Warburg, we looked at hundreds of companies and the telling thing was always, well, Peter, are you going to invest? Because I invested in every one of the companies Warburg bought personally. And if my answer was no, or that I wouldn't do it, uh, there wasn't any we really bought. Uh, and I don't mean I ruled it out. Don't get me wrong. And Warbur- Warburg looked at other things and, and did things that way, but it was a telling idea. And when you looked at hundreds and only went after the 11, 12, give or take that we did, uh, that's how I looked at things. That's how we addressed it. That's how I thought about it. So it's a people. It's, is the technology uh, current? Is it applicable? Can you, can you start from scratch? The RSEG's a great story. The people were very excitable. They were very driven, and they impressed the hell out of me. And the only thing they didn't know how to do was write software code. I said, well, I know how to do that. I know how to hire people. So I, I knew I could augment. That's the beauty of the Warburg senior advisor model. I didn't just sit on the boards. I advised the companies on all the acquisitions. So at Rubicon, I was the founder, executive chairman of the company. I worked daily with Mike and the team to advise what we should invest in, what we shouldn't. So I participate in helping review these other companies, how they fit, what they didn't, why they wouldn't fit. And I gave my advice and counsel. I'm no genius, but I had a sense around what, what would work and what wouldn't work. Some didn't. Okay. So we're not perfect. We all have track records of, of that. but 
I've been more successful than less successful because I follow that model. The people, the technology, the application, where it is in the market or isn't in the market, and can it be ahead of its market and what can you do with it? So I just, I'm sorry, David, if you don't mind. Does that, 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 that mentality, though, is that a, was there a mentor or is that experience or is there a book? Like that is a pretty specific way of looking at it. Or is that just trial and error? It's try. It, it, it's experience. Okay. So I, I mentioned earlier, I, well, I've worked with some brilliant people. I've had experience with, with surrounding myself with different people with different skill sets. And I, I, I met what I said earlier. I like to be a sponge to learn what they did really, really well. How did they present what their presentation style was? And can I emulate that? And people talked about it. Uh, how they interacted with people, I thought was very important. A lot of it was my own personality, but a lot of it was things that I learned. And I tried to pick out all of the great things that people did real well and apply those. A lot of it was entrepreneurial spirit, but a lot of it was experience as well. So all those things melded into my background. It wasn't any one. It's, it's a combination. That's, it's a melting pot. That's what I'm having a hard time. When you read your resume, you think very structured, large corporation uh, mindset. When you hear you talk, it's very entrepreneurial. And it's, so to hear the two kind of experiences, it's almost two separate careers. But then you still have that same, the Halliburton landmark experience was, was very much entrepreneurial in, in a lot of ways too. It's yeah. just, it's a unique uh, career. It, it is. And, and I, it's sort of, I've been very lucky and people say that often, but mm -hmm. I mean it very sincerely. Things just happen. And, and I know they never just happen because I try to make them happen. But I've been very fortunate with my, my corporate career and the private equity venture capital career that I love doing both. And my, what I've learned and how I could apply it has been uniquely positioned for all the companies. I've never been asked to leave. I've mm -hmm. always been asked to stay and do more. And uh, I, I took that very positively because I've had to tell people to leave. And, uh, you know, uh, it's not a good thing. No. So uh, in that respect, I was very pleased to have that opportunity to stick around on my own, on my own merit. And, and look, the other thing I mentioned, it, I'm, I'm a very passionate, driven person. And everyone I work with pretty much sees that. You probably hear it in the interview. Uh, very, I'm, obvious, I'm very, very, very driven to work with other people, especially good people, very smart technical people, and people see that. But I can figure out with, if those people are that or not, and if they are going to be driven or not, I can get the sense of it pretty quickly. He's also a hell of a birdshot, too. Yeah. So before we go to that, I, I do got to bring this up because it still bothers me, but um, are you still bothered by the fact that uh, Griggs dropped that bottle of 16-year-old Lagavulin in my driveway that time? You know, I, I do have some, some shortfalls in my personality, and, and one of those is being unforgiving in some respects. So, yeah, that sort of drove me sort of crazy. Yeah. Uh, a, a friend of ours, we were going uh, on a trip with David, and I bought a really nice bottle of scotch. It's Lagavulin. They, they continue to give me grief about giving Greg, Greg's grief about it. But essentially, he's trying to help me unload my car, <laughs> and he grabs the bottle, and then next thing you know, he just drops it right on the sidewalk. Yeah. And I was really looking forward to sharing that with my friends. <laughs> uh, and it was a really good 18-year-old bottle of Lagavulin. Not, nothing to do with the money or whatever, but it had everything to do with the fact that he dropped it and didn't share it. He had to replace it with not as good of a bottle, but that was okay. It's okay. But, it's you know, okay. we got to... We got to give Griggs a hard time. Which speaking yeah, yeah. about John Griggs, I, yeah, I think honest. we're contractually obligated to only mention Fletch Azul tequila on this podcast. Eh, that's tequila. This is scotch. I think. I think Aaron <laughs> scotch, give us scotch, and yeah. tequila. We could talk about tequila. Yes. Happy to talk yeah. about that as well. So, 
Well, I've got another question. Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So, See, this is, by the way, this is why we have How did I answer your first one? Was your first one okay? <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay good. Just want to make sure. This is why we have Laura on the show. So, okay, good. You know, my question is digital. So Landmark brought you into a whole other side of the oil field. And I mean, well, you, you studied in college, so you, you had seen it before. Um, when you brought me into Landmark, I had the same experience, seeing the reservoir side and the G&G. And um, now digital has come so far. and you know, we used to talk about real time and there were certain thresholds that we would pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, this is amazing. But now sitting here in 2020, it's it's left even further ahead. And can you talk about some of your reflections of the digital journey in the oil field and talk about what you're doing now with Datagration and, and how that ties in? A quick word from our sponsors, and then we're right back to the show. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader, Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we have assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit prang.com. Daniel Energy Partners, in-basin research you can trust a leading provider of U.S. oil field research known for its original boots-on-the-ground research approach, as well as its famous barbecue events. Daniel Energy Partners utilizes both its extensive network of top oil field professionals and frequent in-basin field tours to provide real-time market intelligence. Visit DanielEP.com for more information. Galtway Marketing. Answer this question. What makes your company different? You have seven seconds to catch a customer's attention. Galtway Marketing can build your brand and craft your message for maximum impact across all your marketing efforts. Visit galtwaymarketing.com slash O360 to bring your company into the 21st century. Thank you to our sponsors. And now back to the show. Yeah, great, great question. So uh, timing, timing on technology going back to my earlier point around knowing when it's applicable or not, uh, someone has to start. So real-time was a unique one. We, we, we were doing real-time before anybody even thought about real-time. I was talking about it. We were driving it at the organizations we worked with, Halliburton, uh, Landmark. We were building digital technology centers. But the interesting thing, customers were very set in how they wanted to operate and how they wanted to consume the information. They gradually started getting there uh, and certain things were natural. You had to you had to do them, but a lot of things were unnatural. And that was having an engineer allow digitization and run calculations for them. And because most people thought they were black box related, uh, caused them to step back and not want to do it. Fast forward to the shale boom, and people drill themselves ahead and drill too much and aren't able to qualify. Mm -hmm not getting too detailed, the parent-child relationship and understanding mm -hmm. whether they should drill more wells or less wells, and they drill themselves out of business. Price of oil didn't help, okay? That's sort of the, the, the problems we all face, and we all know that very well. But if you over-apply the same theory to the same formation and then reapply it and reapply it, but don't wait for the results, and you don't digitize those results, and you don't bring those results into a system that allows you to interpret them more quickly, going back to the real-time question, there's real time where you're getting second by second data to make a drilling decision. And then there's there's data that allows you to drive a decision every week or two weeks or four weeks or even two or three months. But having everything digitized to formulate a next game plan or further decision is important. Uh, 
you brought up data integration because I, I know we had an opportunity to talk about it. One of the things I've recently started and acquired was a company called, uh, it was called MeyerCon originally, Oilsphere, and then we just recently changed the name to data integration. But this has all happened in four months. Uh, it was an Austrian-based software company. I'm just going to spell it so people can D-A-T-A. Data integration or data integration, yes. Integration, G-R-A-T-I-O-N. Integration. Okay. It's like data integration except data integration or data integration. Yes. It's a great name, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. We, we, unfortunate at the negative connotation of oil, unfortunately, which, which I hate, obviously being an oil person for 36 years is really sad, but we, we, the, the breadth of the product is bigger than oil. And so we wanted to put a name commensurate with the scale of the architecture and the ability for the product to scale more broadly. So the interesting story is not everything is developed by the big companies. It's not Halliburton and Landmark and Baker. It's still the scientists. And, and we talked about this a few minutes ago around having people develop really unique commercial software, software, but are unable to commercialize it. That's what this product is. So I was asked to look at this product back in February of this year, met with the owner. Uh, he was apprehensive to sell the company. He's Austrian. Uh, he had eight employees. He'd been working on this platform for 10 years. He's got hundreds of man years built into this technology. And the first time I heard it, I used the term BS. No one could do that. That product can't do it. It's impossible. It, it, no, no one's built an open interface platform with an open uh, ability to bring data in, bi-directional API communication, I'm not trying to get too, too, too technical, but it allows you to communicate with any other platform that has an API, right? Pretty, pretty straightforward. I looked at it, introduced it to customers, talked to customers from February, March, April, during COVID, by the way, and discovered that what he had was something I've never seen before and was unique. And immediately decided I needed to buy this company with some partners. And so we raised money to, to quickly make the deal with him. Uh, and from there, we started showing others the technology and talking about it. We did a project for a well-known company here in Houston we connected their data. They were very skeptical. They'd been trying to do what we did for them in a month. They've been trying to do it for two years. And essentially what they've done is they've taken all of this during uh, coronavirus. Corona. So we started the project April 30th. Okay. And we delivered the first output for them, complete digital profile in 30 days. Okay. The end of May. Wow. And they'll tell you that they wanted to add, they want to add the rest of the field. They want to tie everything together. They're, they're believers of the technology and essentially what it does, the whole basis is, if you think about all the different applications and all the different databases and data models in the world, no one's ever able to aggregate the core pieces of information that help you drive a decision. So you get your different technology in the world, I won't mention them, I guess it's okay, we can mention difference from the Petrels to the Landmarks to the Eclipse, whatever, whatever the products are, they have derived outputs that are key pieces of information but they only give you one piece of the equation, not the whole decision around whether or not I should invest in the oil well. Should I invest in another well? Should I do a parent-child? How do I work over a well? What's the capital efficiency model? Essentially, DataGration's platform allows you to take all these disparate sources of data and run a script on top of it that gives outputs around whether I should work over the well, whether I should drill another well, whether I should complete the well, whether I should abandon the well, whatever I should do with it. And it's all done automatically, and it's all displayed in any open API. So whether it's Spotfire or Power BI or Tableau, you're able to you're able to display it 
work up in there, and then import it back to the platform again. And it, it's, it's written for reservoir production geological engineers. And so the whole semantic layer, which is the language in it, is all written for that group of people. No one's ever done that before. No one's ever had a platform. There's lots of competition that say they have something like this, but no one's built that kind of layer and have that ability to parse data and move data around, up and down and all around to derive outputs. It's just a shame you're not excited about it. <laughs> That's the problem. It, it does seem you, you just don't so, have so, any passion so, so, for it. So sorry about that. I, I get carried away. It, it, it's a funny story. Every time I talk about it, my wife will tell me, she closes the door now because she doesn't like hearing it anymore. <laughs> she, probably, she probably heard me say this 20 or 30 times to my investors and to my good friends when I was talking to them and telling them about it. They're like, Peter, you're crazy. It can't happen. I said, trust me. I've already, I've already put my money up. We bought the company. Right. So you can come along for the ride or not, but I'm very enthusiastic about it. It's something so unique that can change the way oil companies can serve up and work data and become far more efficient. One of our clients in Europe will tell you there's been an eight to one, nine to one replacement of people. So what, what our product does has re replaced eight people of the heavy lifting and the calculations they have to do on a case by case basis in an Excel spreadsheets. We actually do automatically every night and the system generates over 200,000 workover candidates based on an efficiency profile, based on capital investment. And it changes every time you put more data in. It has a machine learning component that keeps running, and it produced 200,000 candidates a month on over 20,000 wells. They couldn't run the company without it. They told our investors. Our investors said, we want to talk to your, your, your customers. They called our investors. They called our customers. Our investors did. And the customer specifically said, it's an eight-for-one replacement. I have eight people that had to do the same thing that Petrovisor does, and I could not do the work without Petrovisor because I've got 20,000 wells in it right now. That, data Gration. Data Gration is the name of the company. Petrovisor is the platform. Okay. So Petrovisor is the main data hub, the data platform. It does all the work. Data Gration is the company okay. that has Petrovisor. Okay. And so the, the beauty of Petrovisor, it's all around petroleum engineering. But we're looking to the future to expand to chemistry. So we'll have a chem visor, a facility visor. And so that architecture allows us to scale it. But the one product today is the Petrovisor product that we're standing up in multiple locations around the world. Got it. Okay. But thank you for helping me clarify. Yes, well, no, yeah, that, it's that very good. Yeah. And Josh, what's phenomenal is there are used, the, the way this was done before is floors and floors of reservoir engineers, journaling engineers, people passing files across each other and kind of one central hub dedicated to all the files for that one well, let's call it. And you'd have someone who would be taking the data and manually integrating it and keeping it with the well file. I mean, and all that takes time and energy and, well, and I imagine you know, it's shifting open to back and forth and error as well. Yeah. Oh, right. absolutely. But you error think and interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. The interpretation. Yeah. And no one with a full field doesn't have to take one well and have a full field view. And yes, there were powerful softwares that can do that, that he mentioned. But I think just the advances in, in computing, right, that allow what you just described are really the, the future of the scale that we're talking about now that has not ever been, I don't think we've had this kind of scale in field level work that you, that you just described. The, the interesting thing is everyone wants it, Laura. Yeah, yeah. Every, everyone says, I yeah. want to have digitization. I want to have the disparate systems connected. Mm -hmm. uh, I want our engineers and geologists and everybody to work together, but there's never been a single platform to date that allows us to happen. There, there's been different point-to-point -point products that allow some of these things to take place, but there's never been anything like it. And, and I, I say that not because we bought the company and data gratia, but I say that from someone experienced. 
and have looked at every every different company that that are offering things like this, and they they have different patches and pieces, but never tying the whole thing together. But every com- oil company will tell you today they want to do exactly what we just described. Every paper you read about the digitization, uh, the digital twin, uh, everybody's working on it, but it's hard to get there because you you've got to change the way people work. You've got to believe you want to have the digitization side enacted, and you want to change the way people think about how they look at information and make decisions. So we had a guy on uh, a week or two ago, a uh, guy named John Berger. He's with Sonova. It's a solar company. Very interesting guy, very smart guy, and was, I, I believe, uh, is doing as good a job as you can to carry the mantle of solar mm-hmm. batteries for, for his entire industry. And I said, look, you know, you're, I think you're doing a great job for what you're trying to do. And, and I kind of say a similar thing to you. Are are you, how do I say this? Are you doing a lot of public speaking? I mean, the, everybody does want digitalization. Everybody does want the things you're describing. How much responsibility do you feel for the industry to kind of help the industry transition from, you know, again, with all respect, you know, your generation of guys to the to the next generation to help them understand like this, this bridging of technology with with where we where we were where we need to go because you you obviously have complete grasp of both sides of it so i mean do you feel that responsibility for the industry i i do actually so uh i know a lot of people obviously right. and people know me and so i've been getting pinged hey could you talk to our group I'm, I'm on teams calls sometimes two three four times a day uh we're talking to the consulting firms because they're trying to they're, they're trying to develop what we have and they have no place to put it and so I'm, I'm talking to a lot of people. I've been called to do speaking engagements, although most of them are virtual. Uh, but we really just launched Datagration two weeks ago. Oh. So the, the launch was uh, the 16th. So it's only That's just- September 16th. Correct. Yeah, because this, this will, I mean, this will be a <clears throat> sorry, little dated. September, September 16th, yeah. we officially launched Datagration. The name of the company four week, five weeks before that was Oilsphere. And so all of this is happening very fluidly. Uh, we went from 11 people, we're at 35 now. So we've rapidly hiring. We're hiring people now. So as the podcast goes out, we'll still probably be hiring people. Uh, we're looking for subject matter experts. What's your uh, email address? Or not your email, your website, excuse me. www.datagration.com. So you're going to crack up. This is So Jonathan is our resident millennial back there. He's our producer. And whenever we would say something, we like www.oilfield. And we got off air and he'd say, Josh, he said, you guys never sound old until you say www. And so... Jonathan will privately make fun of you for saying www.datagration.com. Well, that's yeah, how I'm we still, type it, and that's how it's written, and us old timers just yeah. do it the same way. <laughs> and that's on my web page and on my signature page. But anyway, thanks. I, I appreciate it, Jonathan. Uh, so, so yeah. So we to, to answer your question. Sorry, I'm we, we got it's a great. It's good. Too, it's all. It's all. It's all you're good. too smart for us. We got to bring you down a little bit. Yeah, we can't. I, we I can't have this I much intelligence. I don't, I don't mind at all, Josh. It's a good thing. So I I do feel a personal drive to get out and talk about it not only not the least of the wit which is the industry really needs it mm-hmm. uh especially now i mean when you think about how many people are laying off people and so not only were you not efficient before you're less efficient because you have less efficient people to do the way you were doing it efi- inefficiently and so you need a system that allows you to do what we're describing and customers failure to do this shame on them they're going to fail and so I'm prepared to get out at the highest mountain, talk to the high, every, every company, every group. We're talking to them, uh, and they're going to have to make this decision to be successful. And if they don't do it, back to Laura's questions, they won't be successful. They, they won't be able to survive in an industry if they don't adapt. 
but they have to be smart about how they adapt it. it it's not a black box. Everybody says artificial intelligence. Well, this is not artificial intelligence. It's it's translating machine learning, physics, Bayesian networks into reusing information to derive the next decision or output of information that someone could make a decision. And that's what it does. But it's not a black box where you don't know what goes in. You know what's going in. And that's a uniqueness. So, Boudreaux, are you trying to say it's like the Thomas? You're keeping the hot stuff hot and the cold stuff cold? <laughs> that's about what it does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Oh, man, that is – DeRoe does tell some good Thibodeau jokes. I learned them all from I, 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 I have a few, but I, it's, mine are not probably able to be spoken. <laughs> yeah, just the, the – the, the beef. It, it makes company, yes. yes. It makes company. Fair enough. <laughs> well, I think the revolution you're talking about is amazing. How do you see the operator's ability to digest the kind of workflow changes that you're describing? Because you're talking about a whole new way of working. You're talking about new processes and – um, access to information. We're all talking about how you can get it on the cloud and various stakeholders now have access to it, but you're talking about a completely different way of working that an operator has to adopt. It, it is, and, and we have a unique approach in that I tell everyone we're not trying to boil your ocean. Everybody tries to boil the ocean. We don't. So we come in and we prove to you on a case-by-case -case proof of value. And so we bring in the platform will connect those core pieces of data around a problem you're trying to solve. Uh, look, we've got 10,000 wells shut in out of 25,000, and we don't know which one to turn on. So can you take these 500 wells, run it in your system to help derive an answer around which is the best one to do first, second, third, fourth, which are the ones I shouldn't bring back on? And so we started with 500 wells. We solved that problem for us. It took us six months the first time. We did this in 2014. And so today, I can do that same project form in around four weeks, five weeks, because there's a way to map the data through a mapping wizard that we've derived. The semantic layer is further developed where it allows the data, once it's brought in, it automatically comes in every night on its own, where you just port it in, right. and it drives. So, so when we go to them to answer your question, we don't tell them, by the way, we want to boil your ocean. Give us a problem to solve, and you're going to recognize that this is the way you want to solve all your problems. We're working with a customer in California who has a really, really unique problem. They weren't real excited about the, the, the individuals when the company weren't excited about doing it because they do everything by hand, and they're used to doing it by hand. We convinced the CFO and the CEO by hand but why what we would do would automate everything. And the guy said, Peter, if you could just automate it, you would save us man weeks of time on everything we have to do in a decision. I said, no, 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 we're not going to automate. We're going to, we're going to do a do loop to continually give you the feedback of the information, and we're going to derive the, the, the decision information points for you every night when you walk in. And so within three weeks, we've already exceeded everything they want. They want more. They want to expand the scope. So we didn't try to boil. They had multiple fields. They had multiple wells. We didn't try to boil all of it. We just said, give us 50. And right now, they, they, can't, they want more. And every time we do another one, so the approach we do to your question, Lars, is a great question. We don't try to solve world hunger. We have an international client that has two fields that we did a demonstration in one farm, and now they want to stand up two other fields, but they have 35. And so we're going to do them one by one and, 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 and learn from each one on the workflow that's more successful for them or not. That's how digitization gets, because a lot of companies say, we're going to do it all, and we're going to solve everything for you, and, and, and you have to let us do everything. And that, that's not the answer. The approach is more pragmatic than that because you have to get people. you got to sort of walk, 
you know, we're, we're past crawling, we're in the walking stage, and then we want them to start running once they prove how great the applicability of what the digitization world will do for them around decision-making. I mean, your timing on this is just excellent. I mean, the, the 2020 has been a brutal year, obviously, and uh, 21, it does feel like there's some life right now. I mean, September, October, like it, it feels better than it did in March, April. It's, right? it's, a, little, it's a little coming back. Thank you. Right. That's a good way to say it. <laughs> yeah. And so it, while there's a little bit of energy, a little bit of excitement, whatever the word is exactly. Hope. Hope. There we go. Hey, Cope. We had Clay Williams on. I thought Clay did a great job. What he called, he called it the pass through is what he called this, this uh, transition time. You know, there's another podcast that would be interesting for, for uh, you to go on. It's the one that Leslie Meyer does too. Mm -hmm. The energy and transition one. So mm -hmm. there's there's some other places for this story to be told, but the timing of of what you're describing is just excellent for the entire industry. So I'm, I I root this. It's not just a product. I mean that's that's one. There's it, the time for products is, you know, it, you're right. Say it's over. It, we need Look. movements. We need things that can change the course of our industry. I think Greg Davis said it earlier. You know, if there's a problem, there's no better industry than the energy energy industry right. to think through it and. I think all of these operators need to be looking at ways they're going to be forced to this is a, I think investors should demand it. Uh, as we all know, to your point, you're making earlier, Peter, there were a lot of folks just focused on drill, 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 and they didn't really have the quality feedback they needed. And some of these guys have drilled themselves out of out existence. Of yep. And, and there's some that are teetering on the edge. And, and right now, uh, to your point about, which wells do we work over, et cetera, et cetera. These guys are going to, you know, they're going to look at where their capital makes the most sense. So they have sunk costs in existing well bore. So where do we need, who do we need to keep alive and who do we need to shut down? And if we do drill something, where are we going to get the most bang for our buck? And I think it's going to be interesting to watch how this technology evolves because it's, it's, it's going to allow these companies to respond better, which is absolutely necessary right. in a cyclical world that we live in. Yeah, you know, they with, they, with they gas have, prices. I agree with you completely, David. They have to do it, or they won't survive. Because unfortunately, waiting for hundred dollar oil again, you and I and all of us know is not going to happen. Uh, we have a glut. It's going to take us a long time to recover from all the oil out there. I'm still optimistic. Don't misunderstand me, and and I see some hope. But having been in this business for thirty six years and been through seven cycles, I I can talk about what occurs and how long it takes. Unfortunately, and the cycle, this cycle with people using less of it, of what we need, uh, but still having too much of it, uh, and technology allowing them to make more of it, unfortunately, is, is a bad thing. So you have to be smarter about how you get it and extract it, and if you don't, then you're going to have a difficulty succeeding. I have to say, your your story is one of the more impressive pivot careers. I don't know how really to describe it, because you, you've done, it, it, it started very uh, traditional, and it just is... I won't say it's ending untraditionally, but it's certainly no, no. In, a, in a unique place from where it started. So I've, I've enjoyed the story. Do you have anything, Laura, to add? I mean, to. Well, I actually have two, uh, Keep going. two questions yeah. Keep going. here. Yeah. Um, so one is, I tell you, my experience in the past at, uh, at Big Red, I felt like you really learn how to run a business when things are growing and it's fast and it's exciting and everyone, it, it, it's easy. It's actually <laughs> It, oh, easy. It, it's, it's easy, easy on the upside, right? <laughs> and then yeah. you come on the downside, and um, I haven't seen seven, but I've seen uh, three at this point. So can you talk a little bit about what that skill set looks like to lead on the downside 
how it's different from when you're ramping up so fast and furious and what you see in the CEO. I'm sure you see CEOs on both sides of the equation and the business that you're in. It's never fun, uh, but you have fiduciary responsibilities as a leader in an organization or as a subgroup within an organization to make hard decisions. When the money's not there and all field services, everyone in this room knows very well is a real tough, you're counting on others to spend money and then you help them spend that money with the services you provide to them. And so when they start slowing down, uh, you have to start slowing down faster. So they tap the brakes. You better be slamming on the brakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I've had those cycles repeat themselves in my career, which is not any fun. But you make the hard decisions. You wake up knowing that your fiduciary responsibility is to the company. You feel for the people. You have, you're empathetic. You, you wish you don't have to lay people off. You wish you don't have to shut businesses down or whatever. But unfortunately, the strong survive. And so you have to make that decision so the company can go on. We've experienced, and I've acquired companies over the last four or five years that didn't make that decision. And they were at the point where if we didn't buy them or we didn't come in, the lights were turning off. And because they didn't make those hard decisions. And the first thing we look at them and say, well, why did you do that? Oh, well, we, we, we didn't want to do that. Or we didn't like to do that. And, and it's not for the weak of heart. Making those decisions and those actions of putting people on the street, especially people you've been working with for a long time, and I've had to do that, unfortunately, and feel for it, but it's the nature of the beast. And that's the only way companies survive is to, to understand the downturn and react to it. Yeah. Can you talk about how you can preserve offshoots of growth when you're in, in, the, in the middle of pivoting? <laughs> I mean, capital might be a bit scarce, and I think a lot of people are in this situation where, yeah, as David said, every dollar spent is is a dollar bet on the future. So if you're if you're trying to pivot and conserve cash, but yet you've got it, you've got a bridge toward that offshoot of growth. What that can look like? It it it's it's never easy. Okay, mm -hmm. so you're you're asking a very tough question. You have to you have to try to get a sense of where the market is or isn't. Mm -hmm. You have to understand what maybe may be new to apply to that market. Is there something out there that will help you do that bridge? Mm -hmm. uh, and then take a leap of faith to spend the money. So sometimes it's a gut, sometimes it's a leap of faith, however you want to describe it, but it comes from experience. You're never perfect. I, I, I can name some of the mistakes I made where we did leaps and we spent money, but they didn't work out. And that, that happens, unfortunately. So you got to break eggs, you get the experience, but you try not to reapply those ever again. Unfortunately, I've seen lots of companies reapply breaking eggs and they think they broke it one way yeah. and if they break it a different way, it's okay. And then they, it, it doesn't work that right. way. And unfortunately, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You've got to be smart, learn from the experience. As I mentioned earlier, I try to learn from those mistakes and never hit myself in the hammer the same time twice over the same thing. That's usually a pretty good idea. Well, it is. Well said. It is. <laughs> Although I have hit myself, unfortunately, but I try not to do it at the same time again for the same reason. Yes. We, we were talking about this earlier with Patty about the pressure on, on investors and private equity groups, et cetera. And I think, you know, when you, when you think about, early opportunities dot and dot coms and then you had the mm. dot com boom and the early opportunities at shell and then the shell boom that we're we're kind of dealing with now. You know, there's all these licenses available, licenses to drive that are just being handed out, but there are a lot of folks that probably should not be given driver's licenses. And there are probably some <laughs> people that would benefit from taking some driving lessons, thus getting some mentors <laughs> who have Gotten in the wrecks, gotten in the ditches, and listened to to what they did to try, to your point, not hit your 
the same finger at the same time with the same hammer. So Laura said it best, David. It's they give a lot, a lot of drivers licenses when things are good. So in thirteen and fourteen, things were incredible, right? And they gave out a whole lot of drivers licenses in ten, eleven, twelve, and they got to fourteen, and then they wanted to go out and pay a lot of money for those people driving those vehicles, like exorbitant amounts of money, un- unforeseen. I-, I looked at a bunch. Right. And during the course of 14, so remember, I started with Warburg in 14. And deals were flowing through left and right. And I would shake my head and say, no way. We're not, you, you can't pay that. It's not going to happen. It's not sustainable. We're not going to have 2,100 rigs. Don't do it. Don't do it. We went, we went almost 18 months before we bought our first company. So all of, all of 14, nothing. Into 15, we started Rubicon, and we didn't buy our first company, Rubicon, until November of 15 because things were starting to tail off. But believe it or not, there was a whole lot of acquisitions they looked at or talked about. So it was real good at the good time, but when it got real bad, it was real hard because the sky was falling so fast. So having the driver's license when it's good, it's easy. But Mm -hmm. it starts separating the men from the boys who make those hard decisions when things get bad and are still standing uh, in that environment. I know my uh, some of the folks I work with would be, would be I'd be remiss if I didn't ask if you're seeing some exciting uh, technologies around energy transition uh, and really emissions reduction, um, maybe more efficient operational ways of doing things in the field. I mean, we all know. I mean, look, I was in West Texas just a week ago. You drive out I mean, there. Are, I, I've got a business that I'm working on that's all around a better way of doing um, infrastructure and production facilities because we know we know there is a better way. So there's there's lots of different. So the first thing you've got to you've got to agree that you have a problem, but you've got to agree that you have a headache or that you need to take aspirin or you got fever. Or you got to do something. You got do you, to agree. Do you not think everybody knows they have? Well, a unfortunately, yet? people haven't gotten to that point just yet. <laughs> okay. So there there well, are that, te- that that's is, a huge statement. That is a big statement. Yeah. That's actually kind of terrifying. It it, it is, and, and look, some some say it, and and. Unfortunately, I hate to say they pay lip service to it because they need to, okay? Because if they don't, then yeah. it's really bad. There are a lot of people who don't like our industry because people won't admit it. When we went to raise money, I, I did talk to a couple of investors, and the first thing they said is, look, Peter, we love you. We love your guys. We love your team. But we can't invest our money in your business anymore because it has a bad connotation. And, and this was very clear. It was, it was very sobering. And so – the companies have to admit it. There are some admitting it, mm-hmm. okay? The whole flaring, the CO2 mm-hmm. sequestration. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some unique technologies. There's some actually interesting satellite technology that they're deploying. You've probably heard about that. They act, act, actually can scan a field in Midland and tell you how much gas is being flared or not and by whom and by where from satellite imaging. GHG sat, right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you need to translate that into where you're going to capture it, how you get your pipelines, how you're going to reuse it. Uh, I know ConocoPhillips is looking at some of that technology and how they're going to redo it. So, so there are some talking about it and thinking about it, but it's really, really expensive. Okay, so you're you're not making a lot of money from it per se. The ca- the capture of gas, yeah. okay, there's a CO, that's pretty. But the CO two, you've got to spend a whole lot of money to sequester CO two, reinject it, do the plants, reuse it, do those things, uh, and that's tough when you're an oil and gas company and you're trying to invest, have to invest that kind of money because you're sort of being forced. But they're going to have to change. They're going to have to agree that they have a, a headache or a fever or some combinations in the various areas. So I'm going to ask a question to your to your point and your 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 question, Lauren. Why hasn't anybody since we've got so much excess gas that we're flaring, and we've got water as a byproduct associated with our oil and gas production, produced water, dirty water. We've got incredible power source. We've got the ability to generate electricity from that that could 
turn a lot of things and superheat stuff and build steam. We could turn the desert, as we know, the Permian Basin into an oasis and plant trees all over the dang place that didn't have trees in there for forever and sequester CO2 naturally because that's what trees and stuff, and they actually provide oxygen. Why did anybody come out like that with like uh, Bill Gates or Amazon or somebody? You know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, Josh and I were talking about, and they were wanting to produce power. And I, I think, again, it's we've got power generation from all sorts of different areas. But So this is one of the things that we like to give our guests to, to sum up their, their interview. First question is, have you ever done a podcast before? And the last question is, if there was a piece of advice, a pearl of wisdom, that you would give your 30-year-ago person, yourself, or a younger, uh, early Laura Schilling 20 years ago, a piece of advice, pearl of wisdom, what, what would that be that you would like to pass on to our audience? So I've never done a podcast before. This is my first one. The best ever, but that's... Absolutely. It's been great. Yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. It, it was really, it was, it was sort of what I expected, but... But it, it exceeded my expectations. How about that? Well, that's, I mean, and then and the bonus of Laura coming in. I mean, that's oh, no, fantastic. You guys are too sweet. I was really glad Laura came in because I yeah. knew she was going to ask me the toughest questions for sure. <laughs> and I didn't <laughs> and she disappoint. Did. I and didn't she didn't disappoint. disappoint. <laughs> and she, she, she knew she wanted to challenge me or not. This, we would have totally bombed this. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, so, Josh is on the tail end here. What I, what pe people ask me, uh, sort of why, why do I think I was successful and, and how did I evolve to as you pointed out earlier, to get where I got. And I always summed it up is uh, I was always 100% committed in everything I did. If I did it, I was fully committed. Uh, I was passionate about it. Uh, I was confident about it, and I conveyed that, and people saw it. And so what I tell people is get committed in what you want to do and get behind it. All too often today, people want to try a lot of different things or whatever. Sometimes they're forced. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, but, but I was committed to be, uh, the best engineer and the, the best person and have the best work ethic and drive. That was 40 hours was a joke. If I could only work 40 hours, that would be great. So my, my whole, my whole career and, and I, I, I love doing it. And so you have to understand there's a work-life balance. Don't misunderstand me. And as you know, I have a good balance, but I, I think people need to be committed and driven and understand it's, it's about the other person, not just about you. And so somebody who pays you, show them they should be paying you more. Don't ask them for more. Prove to them you're worth more. Deliver more to them. Go above and beyond of what they ask for. That's what I did in my career. Uh, I like to think I did that in my career. I'd like to think you ask people, they would tell you that they never saw me not committed and never driven and not passionate about what I was supposed to be doing. So that's the advice I give to everyone is, is stay focused, stay committed, and driven. And good things will happen. I love it. I love it. I mean, like I said, I, I'm the only one in the room that doesn't know you. And uh, this is <laughs> as silly as this kind of sounds out loud. I mean, you're my kind of guy. I, I, I do. I love the passion. You kind of had me at the Cajun. I was <laughs> I was going to be sold from the start. So you had me there. I do think we need to take them out to go uh, catch some frogs and show them how to do it with the hand. That yeah. So, that so, so, yeah. So some of my uh, friends. Yeah. Uh, are pretty brutal to the frog. They, they, you, you've got to be respectful when you're going to catch a frog. Right. So you, you, you approach him. You're talking about old man hands, road <laughs> Well, not, not only David. I, I have lots of other friends that like to spear him and gig him and, and net him and shoot him and all these kinds yeah. of things. So, so, so I, I'm more civilized because I want to respect the frog. I don't sure. want him to be hostile. So I'll, I'll 
gradually get up to him with a flashlight. Now yeah. I'll tell him, let me, let me look inside your eyes. <laughs> I want to see real closely. And the next thing you know, I grab him with my hand. Yeah. And then I put him in a bag with a bunch of his friends yeah. and so they get to party, to party for a while until Dude, the end, the end of that yeah, is over. The party's over. But that's, that's how you do it. You yeah. do it with a flashlight and your hand. You don't need any of the equipment. No. You need a sack. Yeah. You need a sack for them to hang out in because otherwise they want to run around the boat and they, they, the party goes wild and you can't reuse them. So I, I've shown a lot of people how to do that, and they don't believe that's how you do it, but that's how you catch like frogs. It. You it's, catch it with your hands. Very nice. Laura, do you have anything to, to end here? With, would you well, like I'm going to give my advice to my six-year-old son, who I think is trying some sort of strategy yeah. like that with a frog. <laughs> <laughs> no, bye. Less like don't let the Don't let the occasion fool you. I mean, I, Peter, it, it's incredible um, to, to have you on the podcast, and thank you for sharing. I mean, you your vision we had at the beginning right it's a unique talent to be able to come in establish a vision communicate it to others and make it happen and execute and you've you've had a career doing that time and time again and the lessons i've learned from you over the years have been um irreplaceable and i I, on a personal note i just want to thank you for um, the introduction into the oil field and being there for me for the last 20 years through this wild adventure and i really treasure our friendship Thank you. I do as well, Laura. I appreciate it. That is that is a great way to end the show. That is that's Laura. We just we you know how much we value you coming in here. Yeah, you guys are sweet. Thank that's you. that's fun to have you in today. Wasn't this serendipitous timing? It was. Yeah. It was just awesome. Yeah. And we, Peter, thank you for your time. And Dave, once again, just hit another home run with your guests and uh, your friendship. And really, it's it's a testament to to your personality and your commitment to to your craft that you have friends like this that will come in and do the show for you. So you know, I, I appreciate the the commitment that you have to this podcast and ultimately some of the stuff that you're talking about, Peter, um, you know, I don't want your friends to say they can't invest in our industry anymore because we're, we are doing great things. And, you know, that's one of the responsibilities that David and I actually feel for the show is to tell these stories and bring out the good attributes of what we're doing here. So we'll, we'll take up whatever mantle we can here and uh, we'll, we'll do it our, our part. So, David, do you have anything to, that you want to add to the show here? No, I just really appreciate both of you, particularly you, Peter, for agreeing to come up here and, and uh, tell us a little bit about Datagration. I think I think you did a great job. And did we put uh, Datagration.com, right? www.datagration.com. So, Jonathan, he gave me the thumbs up when I just said Datagration. But, yes, it's www.datagration.com. And, and, and the platform is Petrovisor. 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 We use PV for short. Okay. So, so that's that's the engine. Uh, that drives data creation as a company. Uh, so yes, okay. Laura, is there anything you want to plug while you're on? Today? Uh, no, no, I, I am agnostic. <laughs> okay, but uh, definitely keep on having guests to uh, bring this revolutionary point of view. I mean, this is our our industry is changing, yeah. and um, it, it's not about age. It, it is all about experience and how we all see going forward in a different way that will be better on the other side of this. And there's incredible technology and ingenuity that's fueling that. So it's exciting to be a part of it. So I played injured. True athlete came right. through. Couldn't even, you know, probably rush for 200 yards. Do you have a second win now? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I, I didn't. I, I don't know you, Josh, but I didn't know you were exactly. injured. So you see, you, you played right through it and, and right through it. unbeknownst to me. Yeah, I mean, until you said it. it this is it. This is. I'm really just looking for some sympathy. It's no big deal, Mr. Peter Bernard. We thank you for your time today. Our guest, uh, the, once again, one of our favorite co-hosts, Laura Schilling. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Mr. David Rowe. Thanks again for everything. Uh, look us up on oilfield360.com. Any uh, mail that doesn't end in something being awesome, send to david at oilfield360.com. Anything great, send to josh at oilfield360.com. 
and uh, find us on your favorite podcast podcast platform. Thank you to Fletch Azul Tequila for the podcast studio sponsorship. The, uh, by the way, audience, we are exploding. We're huge in Nebraska now, by the way. I looked our stats up Finally. in Nebraska. We're massive. Finally. It's actually one of our top 10 states now. So. Wow. You think, yes. it, it's you think somebody's just saying, hey, somebody just go like the Well, so I actually went back. I was like, I wonder how Nebraska's doing. I went and looked it up, and we're huge there. So I need to get wow. the recognition. So anyway, thank you guys for everything. Thank you. Thanks, John. My pleasure. Rhode, Rhode Island, too. Right this episode of the Oil Field 360 podcast was brought to you by the following companies. EIV Capital, a growth equity-focused private equity firm, which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit EIVCapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Merit Advisors, crafting holistic tax solutions to improve your cash flow and add profit back to your bottom line. When it comes to state and local taxes, Merit is the expert in the oil and gas industry. Visit MeritAdvisor.com. World Oil. For more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit worldoil.com slash subscribe. Thank you to our sponsors, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, SimmonsPSC.com, Lockton Global Energy and Marine, Lockton.com, Tomahawk Safety, TomahawkSafety.com, Prang & Associates, Prang.com, Daniel Energy Partners, DanielEP.com, EIV Capital, EIVCapital.com, Galtway Marketing, GaltwayMarketing.com, Range Valuation Services, RangeValuationServices.com, Merit Advisors, MeritAdvisor.com, World Oil, WorldOil.com, Fletcher Azul Tequila, FletcherAzulTequila.com. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or at OilField360.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Company, member SIPC and FINRA, and Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC-registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler and & Company, and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.